Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Muslim Centric Podcast where we hope to educate, inspire and entertain on issues relevant to Muslim life and I am your host Aman. So I pray you're well and another apology from me for the delay in posting another episode of this podcast. However, I'm sure you'll benefit a lot from my guest. Ashur Shamis is a Libyan who lived in exile for decades in the UK during the reign of Gaddafi. He set up an opposition party at the risk to his own life. However, his student days in the UK were formative. And in this interview, he gives us an insight into the Muslim community in the 1960s, especially within universities. He is perhaps also well known for translating a number of works into English, including co-translating volumes of In the Shade of the Quran by Said Qutub. I recorded this interview on the 8th of March 2020 and he was visiting Glasgow for a showing of Spike Lee's Malcolm X film which was hosted by a local Muslim institution 55 years after the death of Malcolm. Ashur spoke at the event about the impact Malcolm X had had on him as a Muslim student in the 1960s and how he had even memorised some of his speeches and would be asked to recite them at conferences. So thanks to my good friend Javed Ali for putting me in touch with Ashur and facilitating this interview. There are a number of topics we discuss in this episode, including Ashur's relationship with Malcolm X, early life growing up in Libya, developing a relationship with the Quran and encountering in the shade of the Quran by Said Qutb for the first time. We talk about Islamic societies and FOSIS, which is the Federation of Student Islamic Societies. We discuss the whole issue around Said Qutb, milestones and in the shade of the Quran, the roots of Islamic activism in the UK in the 1960s, on a wider point, do Muslims read enough and what about Muslim students today? We then talk about politics and being placed on Gaddafi's liquidation list and also witnessing the assassination of his friend and also about opposing Gaddafi and accepting his life will be in danger. There are reflections on the Arab Spring and we also touch upon South Africa and the legacy of Imam Abdullah Harun and he gives advice on how we can deepen our relationship with the Quran. So I'll provide relevant links for some of these topics in the episode notes. Just a reminder, please do support the podcast, particularly if you're using Apple Podcasts, as you can rate, review and like, and that does help other people find the podcast. So I hope you do benefit from this episode and I look forward to speaking to you next time. So I'm joined today by my guest, Brother Ashur Shamis, who's in Glasgow at the moment. Assalamu alaikum, Brother Ashur. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. So we're going to have a conversation a bit about your life, and I think it's a very interesting life. But can you tell us a bit about why you're in Glasgow and you came up for a certain event last night? Yes. Well, Glasgow is... Uh, a city which I uh, loved and like to visit very often. I used to visit uh, Glasgow a lot uh, in Glasgow uh, a lot in the uh, in the seventies and uh, uh, early eighties, and uh, it's been a place where uh, I have so many friends, and they invite me from time to time. So we always uh, like to be up here. We heard you speak last night at an event where the film Malcolm X by Spike Lee was being shown. And Malcolm X has a very special place in your heart and in your life. Yes, uh, because I um, uh, I came to England in 1965, late 1965. And uh, it was a, a few months earlier than that. Um, Malcolm X was uh, assassinated in the in the United States, so his uh, case and his example and his life were the talk of the town amongst Muslims, and uh, 
it was very interesting for me to to come up again now and talk about Malcolm X because at that time in the 60s uh, it was it was the subject that we talked about and uh, um, and and we discussed all the time uh, and f- since then I have been following uh, 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 the legacy of of Malcolm and uh, his um, example and his life and so on you know the life of 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 um, Malcolm wasn't apparent to us immediately it came bits and bits and pieces and it took several years before you understand exactly what this man did and what what what, what uh, uh, influence he had in the United States and what sort of um, impact he had on the black community and on the white community as well and how how would you get because obviously this is days before the internet so how would you hear about his sort of messages yeah. and teachings and in those days it's either through books or through people who come and talk about him uh, mainly books really books and articles you know press articles uh, that was the the major uh, uh, the major instrument that we had to know things about uh, Malcolm and also was the recording you know the tape recording uh, his speeches came to us tape, uh, taped on uh, recorded on the on the on the cassette tapes that were the rage at the moment, at the time so many people won't know what these cassette tapes are now <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> you have to describe them you know you have to they are small they're about 10 centimeters by five, <laughs> five centimeters uh, wide. And um, uh, you put them in the machine and you press <laughs> buttons. <laughs> and what about, so you mentioned a bit about his autobiography. And you said yes. you, last night, you said you've got three copies. Mm, exactly. And one of them, you've got some notes and even it's a very old copy. Yes. Tell, tell us a bit about that. Uh, yes, I, I had, um, I, I bought the very first um, copy of the uh of the uh, of the memoirs when it came out, it came out in late '65, and it is the version with Alex Healy, Alex Healy, the uh, journalist who helped Malcolm uh, write it, and he edited for him. It's a brilliant uh, book. It's um, it's the most comprehensive uh, biography uh, of the man and his um, uh, and his work, and. Um, it was very nicely written. He, uh, Alex Haley, uh, himself wrote a very good introduction, very long introduction to the biography, which, which was in itself educational and, um, and informative. So I bought that, uh, uh, my, my first copy, and I was still new in the United Kingdom. And uh, it took me a few years before... Uh, about 1970, that I read it really uh, well and and uh, absorbed uh, the ideas in it. That uh, that's when my English became working English. So when I read the the, the that that uh, biography, it completed the circle for me as far as uh, uh, Malcolm Malcolm is concerned. You know, Malcolm's uh, life is also connected with the life of Muhammad Ali, mm. the boxer. Yes, uh, and uh, uh, at at that time, of course, he was ra- he was the rage. He was the champion of the world, and he he took the whole world by storm, you know, with his 
gabs with his um, poetry, with his uh, interviews, uh, then later on television interviews as well. For several years, you know, about a, de- a decade at least or more, uh, they were uh, uh, persons who were alive with us, you know. You, you read about what they have and uh, you t- every time something is written, it's something new about Malcolm and about Hamd uh, uh, um, Ali. So, you know, you, you were... You were living with them, in fact, although Malcolm was dead, but he was still li- living, he was still, still alive with, with us. And so on, you know, all this um, heightened our uh, interest in, in the two men and um, make us realize that these are, these are our people. These are not Americans. They're not blacks. They're not, they are Muslims, you know. And when they talk, it's just like us talking and what was it about Malcolm X that resonated with you as a young person at that time? Why was it something you could relate to? Well, his his um, his uh, dynamism, his uh, intellect, you know, uh, his uh, ideas, who which were Islamic ideas, basically Islamic ideas, uh, although some of them were a little bit uh, tarnished by the black. Uh, the black movement, uh, the black Muslim movement, uh, ideas which were not really correctly Islamic, but somehow he has been guided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to find out all the time what is the real Islam. And of course he, he did find that out by, by his uh, emergence from the American, the American situation into the international situation. In the international scene, um, Malcolm was different. He he was uh, he had a, a, a international stature, a global stature about him, and uh, he would speak to presidents and uh, uh, politicians in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East, and so on, uh, comfortably. So his ideas w- were very, very clear, very penetrating ideas, and they were combined with this. Uh, this character he had, you know, this uh, emotion, emotional uh, person, but at the same time, very calculating person. He doesn't just throw words like that. He uses words, you know, perfectly. And um, this, of course, was very important. This was fascinating for the white people as well as the black people. And that's what made us more uh, uh, interested as well. He's not just a a representative of, of a small community in in the, in the States, which is not very small, 22 million, but uh, a side community, you know. His ideas were resonant either also with the white people. So he had an effect. He had an impact on uh, on life in general in, in, this, in the States and on, on Europe as well. And if we go back a little bit to your own life, so you uh, grew up in Libya originally, Tell us a bit about what your life was like growing up. Well, uh, in Libya, I was very f- fortunate, you know, from the age of about 12, 13. I found people who look after me, although uh, I, uh, my father died very early. I was one year old when my father died. I spent, uh, you know, the whole life with, with uncles and with uh, uh, cousins and things like that. Um, when I was about 14, I moved from our town where I was uh, born, Gharian, 
which is 100 kilometers south of Tripoli, the, the capital. I moved to Tripoli, and that move was, you know, quite uh, important for me. It was a turning point. Uh, of course, when I was in Tripoli, Tripoli is a big city, it's a modernized city, and um, the, the level of activities was much higher. So there were people who were interested in Islam and who were, uh, you know, you could consider as uh, Islamic um, uh, teachers. Uh, they, they were mentors to me. And there was one in, in particular who was uh, taking very special care of me and teaching us, you know, how to, how to read books and how to uh, criticize books and how to go to the cinema and how to criticized the films and so on, you know. Uh, I was about 15, I didn't know very much about about this. But but this gentleman was teaching me these things, you know, one, and he he was not my teacher at uh, school at all. He's, he's, a, he's a, a friend of the family, so I used to go out with him uh, to go on uh, trips and to go on uh, small journeys, other cities of Libya and so on. And, and he would teach me, and he taught me, of course, the most important thing is how to read the Qur'an. And um, Was he an imam, or was he like a scholar? Or? He was not an imam, he was an intellectual person, yes, he was okay. a teacher, he was a teacher. But uh, he was not a traditional imam, and not a traditional sheikh of, of, of Islam, but he had this wide wide vision of, of, of life, you know? Like I said, he, he didn't just... Uh, say, you know, follow this this line, and this is... A, no, he opened my mind to v- v- all sorts of things, you know. And to, this this um, opening up your relationship with the Qur'an, then, so tell us about what, what did he do, or how did he do that, that resonated with you? Yeah, he used to read the Qur'an for me. He, every time we meet, he would take about half an hour or so, just reading the Qur'an, and I'm listening. Uh, and then he said, why don't you memorize this? Why don't you memorize that? Why don't you uh, uh, look at this? Why don't you and uh, try and read the Quran? So, so I began to read in front of him and he would correct me. And that is, you know, valuable. That, is, that, is, that in itself is education. Um, uh, so I grew to, uh, to, to uh, love the Quran. He had a beautiful voice. He had a very nice way of reading the Qur'an. So I also developed a tariqa, not a tariqa, but a style um, of my own in reading the Qur'an. And, um, so, and I began to memorize the uh, various parts of the Qur'an at, at school as well as outside, outside school. So I built up a, a small repertoire of, 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 the, of the Qur'an, of the ideas. And then I began to read books about the Qur'an, you know, commentary. Which ones? Any? The most important one is In the Shade of the Qur'an by Sayyid Khutub. So that's when you were first introduced to that translation yeah, yes, at that time yes, when you were quite young. Uh, yes, the, there will be another uh, story for me with, with In the Shade of the Qur'an because when I came to this country... Uh, at the age of 18, uh, a few le- uh, years later, I began translating in the Shirt of the Quran into English, and it was being published in the magazine of the um, F- Student F- Federation here. And uh, it was a very, very, uh, very uh, successful um, uh, enterprise. So people 
began to know about yeah. Seth Khutub. Of course, Seth Khutub at that time was was very much in the news. He was um, a man who was uh, imprisoned by Jamal Abdul Nasser of Egypt, president of Egypt. And then he wrote the, the, the initiative of the Quran in, in, in prison. And um, it was in 1966 and I was here at, at, at that time. He was executed. So we'll come on to your second relationship with in the Shirif Quran. Yeah. But in terms of your first relationship in those days, what what is it about that translation or the tafsir that yeah. stu- you, stu- you know, stood the, out for you? The tafsir, when you talk about tafsir, and, uh, to my mind at that time, you know, as a, as a young man, tafsir is something very, very big. You don't, you don't dare talk about it or, uh, or say things about it because, because because this is the the work of sheikhs and ulama and so, so on so you need to be a scholar yeah, or learn to access that okay yeah. yep. in the shade of the quran didn't do that for me it it opened everything for me i could read what uh, uh, sayyid qutb was saying and i could read the quran and compare to and find out the meaning of the you know, so even for me as a young man as a premature in many uh, ways um, I was able to read the Quran and understand it and uh, you know relate relate the, the, the Quranic meanings to real life and this was a revolution in in our in our time at that time the other thing they say about that translation is uh, it talks a lot about the literary style of the Quran Yes. Oh, well, Sayyid Qutb had other books on the Quran, but not in the shade of the Quran. He had other books explaining the artistic uh, form of the Quran, uh, the the scenes in the Quran, the scenes of the uh, after day. You know, uh, he had touched on many other aspects of the Quran, which were not part of his tafsir, but they were actually explaining tafsir, that the Qur'an is not just a book of religion or a book of uh, uh, religious ideas, but it's a, a book of a style of art, effects on, on, your, on, your, on your mind, on your body, on your uh, being, that you can have a relationship with the Qur'an, you yourself and me, myself, could have a relationship with the Qur'an. Nobody else interferes with it. And this was something that... Uh, that really um, affected me and uh, and pushes you forward because the meanings of the Quran never ending. There's no end to what level the Quran takes you uh, as far as uh, style and ideas and expressions uh, concerned. You go with the Quran, the Quran guides you, you know, along. How did that then, um, how did you come to, I guess, translate and edit a version all those many years later. Tell us about that story. Yes, well, well, when I left Libya at the age of 18 and came here to study engineering, I had already been aware and been interested in writing books, reading, uh, you know, uh, current affairs. I had uh, journalistic uh, leanings. I had, um, I used to, you know, uh, the first thing I did when I came to this country, I started e- reading daily newspapers, which was absolutely, you know, uh, something uh, something new to me and something exciting. I couldn't do without it uh, from then on because I was reading Arabic newspapers in Libya. I became to read 
English newspapers, and that uh, has worked on my personality. So in, in addition to my studies, uh, 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 curriculum studies, I was also interested in, in so many things. And then when I first came here, I came here in October, and I was introduced to, to some friends, some Libyans, some non-Libyans, who invited me to a conference in December 65. So I arrived late, late October, December. I was in a, in a conference here in, here in England. It was, I believe, in Leeds. This was, the conference was uh, two conferences in one. One is in English, organized by the Federation of Students' Union here in this country, and the other one in Arabic. So is that forces? Yes, forces. So they would have just been set up around that time. Yeah, they, they, yeah. They're, they're about, they were about three, two years, two yep. years old or something. So it was something. Federation of Student uh, Islamic Societies, yeah. which is still going. Yep. Yeah, in Ireland, in, in Ireland, in the United Kingdom. So this federation and the the uh, Muslim Student Association, or Muslim Student Union, uh, which was in Arabic. These are the two organizations at that time that were controlling the, you know, uh, the Islamic work in this country. And they created something called Islamic work. You know, they were, they were creating Muslims uh, uh, actively working for Islamists in, in addition to their uh, study and so on for, for the Muslims in this country. And although the, the so Muslim, you went to this conference a few months after you'd arrived in the UK? I, I went there. When I... Um, I met with, you know, uh, incredible people from all over the Arab world. I was so fascinated. And um, because I knew how to read the Quran and how to uh, say the Adhan, for instance, they introduced me to go on and, and read the Quran, you know, to op- when opening uh, a session or something like that, uh, called the Adhan for Salah. And they were, you know, they were so happy that, <laughs> that I was there. Um, so... Uh, from then on, I became, you know, uh, a working uh, uh, person for those organizations. And had you been active or like Islamically active or anything be- before you had arrived at that point back in Libya? Yes, so yes, of course. I, you started to get- yes, I was uh, slightly uh, active, you know, I was in contact with Muslim uh, people, uh, Islamically active Um uh, of course, reading books by the Ikhwan writers, reading books by other Egyptian and uh, Syrian uh, scholars, which were very, very important, very uh, uh, penetrating and, and effective to us. So we started to collect these books here in this country and uh, you know, uh, allow, allow uh, their distribution. Uh, and so when you came to translate in the Shirif the Quran, um, was that just a natural culmination of being in those circles then? Absolutely. Had somebody asked you or was, how, how do you come no. about to somebody saying, no. look, can you do uh, that, translate uh, it into English? I, uh, nobody answered me and uh, nobody asked me, but I started translating and I gave it to the brothers who were in charge of publishing uh, the magazine called The Muslim, a uh, forces magazine. And uh, they said, this is very good. Uh, they edited a little bit and, and, and published it. And then... Uh, every month I would translate something else and they edit it and, and, and publish it. So, you know, uh, people took notice of, of this work um, by Sayyid Qutb. Sayyid Qutb, who was, who was a controversial man at the time, 
uh, who was uh, uh, executed in 1966. So, you know, everything is still live. Um, Sayyid Khutub and uh, the Ikhwan and the uh, atmosphere and, and the shade of the Quran being translated, you know, it's, 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 uh, one thing uh, fed into another. And obviously now, the, the, especially since um, the 9-11 attacks, this whole conversation has changed um, and people see Said Qutb in a very different light and the Ikhwan and the movement. Um, what are your thoughts around that? Because even to talk about this or to, you know, I know brothers that have got rid of their copies of Milestones and these other <laughs> books to say, actually, we can't even talk about these things. So what's your sense of where we are in particularly as a Muslim community who are feeling very much under threat or on the defensive about in the shade of the Quran, say Qutub, etc. Well, you cannot miss, you cannot dismiss uh, the shade of the Quran or the work of Sayyid Qutub. Uh, the work of Sayyid Qutub is part and parcel of the Islamic intellectual uh, movement life in the 60s and the 50s uh, and up to this day. Uh, there are lots of people. Said Khutub is not an easy man to 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 uh, to take on. Uh, his ideas are genuine. His ideas are biting. His ideas are very strong. Uh, he goes to, I wouldn't say to extremes, but he goes, you know, right to the uh, to the to the edge of ex- uh, uh, extremism and comes back. Yes, I think uh, some of his ideas were tarnished by the uh, the environment he was in, you know, especially Ma'alim uh, Fatariq uh, milestones. Uh, milestones is from the shade of the Quran. I mean, the contents of milestones are from the shade of the Quran. Very sparse. You you actually you find uh, complete sections taken from the first from the shade of the Quran. Uh, he had this idea of, you know, um, of, of um, uh, boycotting the society, for instance, and, and the idea of the jahiliya, the modern jahiliya, and so on. The jahiliya is non Islamic life of, of the Muslims, as it were. And he, he pointed that, uh, that, that uh, there shouldn't be any hypocrisy about Islam. If you are for Islam, come forward. If you are not coming forward, don't talk about Islam. Uh, so, so there was a, a, a dislocation uh, of Islam uh, from the Muslim life. And this uh, theory was controversial. And still today, sometimes it, it crops up. Maybe a bit like Malcolm X, where people have used his writings and teachings for their own causes. How do we understand the, the teachings of Sayyid Qutb? Is it... He said different things in different contexts, or people have then misinterpreted it or misunderstood it, or I mean, just because some people will say, you know, he's the godfather of you know jihad and all these problems, and the you know some people have you know where it's become violent extremism, and some people will say, well, actually, I had very you know, I studied his teachings and I didn't become violent or yeah, aggressive. So yeah. um, I'm just interested in terms of how are people misinterpreting or misusing, or are they you know. Uh, you know, how, how are they using his teachings in, in different ways? The main idea of Sayyid Qutb that this society we, we, we live in today uh, is not a society. 
is not an Islamic society, and therefore you have to take a stand against this society. And this might have been true for him, the, the environment he was in, the environment of the prison, the environment of Egypt as such. You know, when he was out of prison, he was also the people, he saw that, uh, that the situation was not Islamic. And he declared that this is not Islamic, I have nothing to do with it. And that uh, met with a lot of uh, approval from young people, especially the Jamaat al-Takfir wal-Hijra, those, the group of uh, declaring the society as apostates and um, we have to go away from it, we have to separate from it. They interpreted that literally, you know, and they started building on it. And that caused the the eruptions, what happened in Egypt in the 60s, mid-60s, uh, uh, and, and ended in, in, in a very messy situation uh, at that time. Although Sayyid Qutb actually has outgrown the Ikhwan movement, a lot of people still associated him with the Ikhwan. Although he has... Uh, moved on from the Ikhwan. The Ikhwan don't claim him anymore. And and there are people who, who, who still associate him with the Ikhwan. So whatever they say about Sayyid Qutb uh, goes on uh, being true against the Ikhwan and so on. And as somebody who translated and edited some of his work, have you ever been questioned about you know these writings or teachings post 9-11 or with authorities or... Publishing houses and yes, stuff. Yes, I mean, you know, people try to uh, find roots for uh, all that happened in in uh, in, uh, in Sayyid Qutb's writings uh, for the 9-11, for Al-Qaeda, for, you know, lots of things. But uh, when we go back to the to Islam itself, we find that people have interpreted Islam to suit their own, uh, their own situation or their own ideas. But Sayyid Qutb wrote a lot. He wrote the whole Quran, a commentary on the whole Quran. If you just say, take a few pages and say, well, he he, he deviated here and he uh, uh, was extreme there. But you have to read the rest of his uh, writing. And this is what the sensible people have done. And they consider that in the Shadda Quran is one of the main commentaries. Uh, that are exist today. You cannot understand the Quran uh, and dismiss in the shade of the Quran. Can you still buy it, the English translation? Is it still available? Will people yes, sell of course. online and things. Of like course, that? it's available. Okay. It's available from the Islamic Foundation in uh, in in England. Because some in, of his publications have been. I don't know whether people have well, stopped well, selling them or they're. Yeah, maybe maybe them. maybe milestones yeah. in 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 English or uh, even in Arabic. Uh, it's not it's not available at the moment, but um, but it is in, in the shade of the Quran anyway. Yeah. You talked about how writing for the Fosis newsletter, the sixties and early seventies seemed to be a really pivotal time for yeah. Islam in Britain, Definitely. particularly activism and the Dawah scene. I mean, can you tell us a bit about that? What are your memories of that time? Because I think a lot of the roots of activism now go back yeah. to some of those early days. And it's really interesting because it seems like so many people from different countries found a home in the UK. 
Yes. And in London, particularly from Muslim countries. So can you t- give us a picture of what life was like at that time, both on the scene, but also for you personally as well? Yeah, the, the, the Islamic work here in this country goes back to two groups, a Pakistani group and an Arab group. The Pakistanis originate from Jamaat Islami uh, of Maududi and so on, but also from other scholars like uh, Indian scholars and so on. The, Arab, the Arabs who were active in Islamic work in, in the 60s were influenced mainly by the Ikhwan mo- movement. Uh, and there were uh, students here from every country you can think about. There were students, and not only students, but there were highly qualified students. There and were even graduates from Al-Azhar and other universities. So at that time, there were, weren't people in exile, it was more people studying? Yeah, yeah, studying? that's right. There, okay. there are people who came here to study. The people who were in exile are from Egypt, mainly, because uh, Egypt is the yeah. hot Bed of, of, of and work. and apart from these sort of Islamic movement methodologies from Pakistan and Arab, there were no other real influences in terms of the Dawah scene at that time. Uh, not really. There were uh, the uh, Malaysians, some Malaysian students also uh, 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 existing here in this country. That's all really. Okay. It's mainly the main the main Arab mainly from the Arab world and from India and Pakistan. So these people who are influenced influenced the Islamic work here in the in the early um, 63 64 it was students from Iraq mainly who started this um, uh, Muslim student organization and uh, of course they had uh, activity in their country um, in all the Arab countries of students unions student unions. when came here when they came here he said let us start a movement for the Muslim Student Union. And these are the, the Muslim Students Union are the, 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 the foundation of Islamic work here. Because a few years later, some of them graduated and so on. And what was their, what was the function that they were trying to recreate? Was it a political thing for the issues back home or was it just to meet the needs of the Muslim students that were in the country? Or what was the emphasis at yeah, that time? Yeah. First of all, communication. And second, how, how do you mean communication? Uh, a communication between the, Mus- the Muslims. Yeah, okay. How do you bring Muslims together to discuss, you know, common uh, uh, subjects or, or common issues? And secondly, education. These are the two. Education, you mean? Education by spreading books, by spreading ideas, by um, uh, allowing uh, lectures to be uh, given. Um, uh, workshops um, uh, and these sorts of things that people people wanted somewhere to go to to learn about Islam in addition to what they came here to learn engineering or uh, law or whatever it is they wanted to uh, that they, they, they wanted some activity for uh, for Islamic work even if they didn't want it you tell them you do <laughs> they do want it and when they come they love it because they meet Muslims from, from other countries. And which bits of the UK were more active or where were a lot of these students? Are there any particular cities? In, in the universities, and all the universities. Oh, everywhere? All Edinburgh, um, uh, Glasgow, uh, Sheffield, Leeds, Lancaster, uh, London, of course, the whole of London. And, um, you know, wherever there are universities, 
there used to, we would go and establish an Islamic society. Once you establish Islamic society, you let it uh, uh, on its own to organize their And then every year, once a year, we come all together, all these societies come together in, a, in, in one conference. So uh, a conference attended by, by about 500, 600 people at that time. Well, that's a big we, number. Yeah. Yes, it, it is a big number. Uh, the numbers uh, reached uh, thousands later on, you know. And um, so this is the network that exists. The other thing, people began to set up centers, especially the Pakistanis. The Pakistanis, because they are, uh, they were going, they were going to settle here. Now these people are no more, no longer students, but they are settled here and the Muslims. So they started building mosques. In London, there was only one mosque, the Central Mosque. No, no other mosques. Uh, there's, there was the, the old uh, Jihan, Shah Jihan uh, Mosque in Woking, the eldest, uh, the, the oldest uh, mosque in the country. And um, slowly, slowly, they began to build centers and uh, meeting places and, and mosques, of course, uh, for people to come and make their uh, prayer, their salah, and also to discuss things. You know, that, those centers became uh, the place, the focal point of activities, any activities you might have. And how were you able to do this? Thinking back at that time, for most of you, English wouldn't have been your first language. Money would have been very tight, you know, there's very limited resources and funding. We don't have the social media, or etc., where you can communicate. So how, um, and, and you, ha you have your studies as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how did you, how did people deal with all of those challenges and still seem to have achieved so much? Well, they, as the uh, societies grew and there were centers for Islam, people began to think of building uh, a new centers or uh, financing uh, uh, centers and so on. And then corrupt the idea of, of funding and financing. How do we go about financing? There came the idea of going to the Middle East and, uh, you know, uh, presenting whatever you have. You have a center that takes so many people that have uh, activities and so on. We need some money. So there were people in the Middle East who were able to resonate with that and uh, give the money to, to these organizations to, to finance these centers. And of course, these uh, organizations that were going over there uh, asking for, for finance, they had individuals who are authentic individuals, you know, who are, who are uh, bona fide uh, personality and, and, and so on. Slowly, slowly, these centers grew up. And then we began to distribute books. This was a revolution. We began to distribute that later on sell books as well. Uh, we we established one of the earliest uh, books bookshops in London. Uh, What in was that called? The Muslim Information Service, okay. and which is at the Muslim Welfare House, okay. which is in London at the moment. Um, Do you think, as a community now, we don't read enough, or our relationship with books has changed? <laughs> that's, that's another story. That's a very, very sad story. Uh, now, nowadays, it's different. You know, there are libraries, bookshops all over, the, all over the country. But, um, uh, But do you think the Muslim community do we read enough? No, no, of course not. No, we don't read enough. We read, you know, some 
established stuff, you know, but we don't read books that introduce new ideas and, and talk about uh, the, the world. And th- Very few people read books. And uh, well, Why do you think that's changed, or do you think that's linked to the well, situation we're it in? Is, it is linked to the situation as a whole. I mean, it's very, very sad that in the Arab world, for instance, there you are know, very few people who read books uh, about, uh, about the world today. And also in this country, I mean, our own generation... Uh, uh, not, not, uh, the, the, the second generation, my uh, my children, your children, and their children, um, hardly read any books at all. Mm-hmm. I tried very very hard to to persuade any of them read books. Uh, you know, uh, anyway, the means of of communication have changed a lot, and instead of having to read uh, a book to get uh, some. 10 ideas or 12 ideas you can listen to uh, <laughs> something and uh, or you think you think listening to uh, something on the radio or on television or reading something in the uh, social media gives you enough ideas to to carry on with what i find difficult with that is that with books there's usually a process somehow to make sure there's a degree of quality in it yeah the way that goes through a publishing house or goes through yeah. an editing process some of the challenges are online anybody can write anything yeah. and you hear a lot about this fake news you know you could just make things up or you you know you can give a certain perspective and it loses that very much yeah. the idea of getting some credible information or you know everything's bite-sized now in very short yeah. articles and yeah. the idea of digesting a bit more something difficult mm. and digesting it and reading it and rereading right. it i mean right. even if it's going back to the autobiography of malcolm x where we started you know these type of things yes. you know uh, is a real challenge, I think, uh, as a community as well. As, as it is. I mean, in the whole world, uh, reading books, I mean, in the Western world, is coming back now. There are people who actually go to bookshops and pick up a book and pay for it and, and, and go home and read it, which is very good. Uh, you have Amazon, for instance. You know, you can write... Uh, for for any book and they will find it for you and and you you read it so so you you do uh, spend time and effort to obtain a book so you must read that, that book i mean this is very good but this hasn't uh, become so uh, widespread yet in in the in the uh, even in the west there are many, many people, especially the young people, they don't read uh, books. Unless they are brought up from an early age to uh, to consider the book a source of information, not just something you put in the shelf. One of the biggest ironies I find is like, um, you hear about a lot of these CEOs of big companies and businesses, and the, actually the amount of time they spend reading is, is a large quantity of their time, and even somebody like Bill Gates, who invented, you know, the PCs, you know, the software, Microsoft. I think he reads something like 14 books a week or something like this, you know. You think, actually, people that, the more they're closer to technology is actually, they're still using, because it gives you the ideas and the exposure to lots of different things. Yes. Um, Can I ask you a bit about, you talked a lot about where the importance of uh, students and, you know, the student movement around that time for Muslims do you have a sense of where the campus or the Muslims are now in terms of Muslim students? What's your sense? Are they have they, you know, taken the baton and carried it forward, 
or are we in a very different, confused mix of situations? Uh-huh. Yes, it is different. It's not the same as before. You know, in, in the past, if you want to uh, get attached or associated with 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 Islamic work, you go to a, a student society in in such and such uh, university. So, once these people have grown up, once they graduated, they either went back to their own countries or stayed here, uh, lived and lived here. And then the political turmoil in the Muslim world uh, forced many, many people to stay here in this country. So uh, these people are no longer taken by student associations. They were uh, bigger than, than students. So these people started to to finance or to establish centers, centers uh, that uh, could um, uh, uh, have a, a mosque and a few other offices. Especially the Pakistani community, of course, went uh, you know haywire about uh, establishing <laughs> mosques and uh, centers and so on, which is very good. I mean, you know, this is very very nice. It was feeling of the of the Muslims of being. Uh, left alone, then ha- have to come together in a, in, a, in the form of Islamic society was very very uh, 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 useful and very intriguing. That that the people continue to be together. This is uh, nowadays happening all over the country in mosques, all over the place, and so on. So the Islamic centers be- become also became a little bit political as well. And they are not not political in the in the bad sense, but political in the sense of being establishment um, centers. You know, like organizations. There's a lot of um, associations being registered as charities or uh, or as um, centers of of education or centers of social work and so on. So they assumed a an official character. Now this is very important as well. This. This is part of, of, of the uh, establishment of Islam here as, as, a, as a force as well, social force, uh, yeah, educational force. Of course, the spread of schools now also uh, has become very wide in, in this country because there are generations to be educated. And so, so this is what we are struggling with now. So the priorities have changed from yes. those early days in the 60s yeah, where yeah. they were trying to establish themselves now. Yeah community has grown and there have lots of more exactly. needs that need to be catered for. Now, nowadays, it's a, it's a community. It's human beings yeah. in the, which have other needs, which have other problems. And there were uh, social problems, there were um, educational problems, there were health problems, there were problems with Islamic law, there, there are problems with the with how do we fit in this society? You know, all sorts of things began be, became relevant and 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 became live, uh, and people had to deal with. So they had to uh, bring in sheikhs, who bring in uh, ulama, you know, who, who have knowledge of Islamic law, who has uh, knowledge or or experience of uh, of Islamic social work to uh, to help the people here, and of course. In this, there has been so many mistakes and so yeah. many confusion that we are still in the process of, of cor- correcting at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and, and one thing, the, the, the thing is that there is no more one leadership of Muslims. Mm-hmm. You can't speak about, yes, yeah, there is a Muslim uh, community, but it's not one thing. 
the Muslim community is completely different. You know, you can have a, a, an Arab and a Pakistani praying together, but once they leave the mosque, everybody is different. Everybody looks at... at uh, Their needs are different. Yeah, the needs are different. The needs of the society are different. Their priorities are yeah. different. You know, so And also their knowledge. There are some people who have got involved in this, uh, in this in this society, but they have very little knowledge about Islam. And there were people who have proper Islam, and they are also uh, making roads somehow, you know, influencing the the, the society. So the the situation has changed. Yeah. Has changed. And so, had your intention always been to stay? In the UK, or had you hoped to go back to Libya at the time? Tell us a bit about why that became difficult. Yeah, my intention was always to go back to Libya tomorrow, but it never happened. And I think that's quite a common theme amongst a lot of the immigrants yes, that came, yes. come for a few, few years, either exactly. economically or education, exactly. and then go back home. Exactly, but the, the, the existing circumstances made it impossible. So what happened because, you know... For political reasons... In your biography, you mentioned that you know you was the target of Gaddafi's physical liquidation squads. Yeah. How did that? Where did you from somebody that left as a student? How did it get to the stage where you couldn't go back? Now, in addition to the fact that I was interested in Islam and the Muslim community here and the uh, problems of the Muslims in this country and so on and so forth, I was also all the time attached to the Libya problem. Libya being ruled by a dictator having difficulties, there is a political turmoil going on all the time. I was uh, with, the, with, with the groups who were opposed to the regime. So I couldn't go back to Libya. My name came up on, 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 on the lists of the people who are uh, unwanted uh, back uh, in 1973. Um, and, uh, if you had gone back, what do you think would have happened? I would have gone to prison, or I would have changed my mind, or you know, indoctrinated to to follow, just to put myself inside the the groups and and go with the with the with the flow, as it were. No, I didn't want to do that, so I stayed here, and especially here, there was still the opportunity to to work for Islam, which to me is more important than working for Libya. But Libya is important, but the Islamic work is more, much more important. And I, I, I was by then completely devoted to working for Islam, for for Muslim uh, organization, the Muslim Welfare House in London. And uh, then the, the Libyan um, situation became uh, very, very agitated. And there was a, a con- an open conflict between the opposition and the regime. What decade are we talking about here? Uh, the, this is the late 70s, early 80s. In, in April 1980, a friend of mine, a Libyan friend of mine, was gunned down right in front of the Islamic Center in, in London. In London? Yeah. yeah. He was a, a journalist. He was working for the BBC. And uh, he was gunned down. Oh, in a point blank, uh, in 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 front of the uh, in front of the uh, uh, mosque, they caught the two people who who, who shot at him, and uh, they immediately came to the center I, I was working for, uh, at the moment, and I was away. I was in the Middle East collecting money for the for the Muslim uh, welfare house, and they told them, please uh, tell Mr. Shamis don't come here anymore. His name was on the same list. Those people were looking for two people, not one. 
And they'd come from Libya. Yeah, yeah. Um, so from then on, I changed my whole structure of life. You know, I went underground. Um, I cut uh, my relations with lots of activities I was involved in, but I could not uh, carry on as usual. Um, and then uh, the Libyan issue snowballed, you know, became bigger and bigger, and, uh, and I had to become involved in it. Because a, a, few, uh, a few people, about four or five people, friends of mine, Libyans, uh, some of them were, were uh, diplomats and some of them were um, educationalists and so on, they decided, and I was with them, to set up an opposition group uh, against Gaddafi. That must have been a really difficult decision. I mean, is there not a bit of you that are saying, okay, maybe just I need to stay quiet for me and my family, life's different now? You know, how do you come to a decision to well, say, okay, I'm going to still some, put my head above the parapet? You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, some some people uh, interpret it as a suicide, uh, yeah. you know, uh, decision. Uh, it means that you are going into, uh, you know, a leap in, into into the the unknown. You, we didn't have a clue what was uh, uh, what was to happen or what was to befall us. But we knew that this is an enemy, it's an enemy of Libyans, it's an enemy of Islam, and we are defenders of Islam. We just have to take the initiative and, and go and so, so, from, so were you were you at peace in your own mind that if you were yes, going to, yes, absolutely if you were going to get I didn't really um, cross my mind that that uh, what what was important for me is to take precautions and try and beat the system rather than submit to it. The, the Gaddafi system, as it were. Although the Gaddafi uh, uh, killers and hunters, they were here. They were here in this country. They were being arrested by, by the British uh, police, you know, almost on a monthly basis or weekly basis. So the, the danger was real. It was uh, uh, present. Uh, but I took... Um, uh, took precautions and uh, what, what sort of precautions easy precautions really you know you you, you go without telling anybody where you're going uh, if you meet you meet in a in a place sort of out of the way slightly you don't uh, announce where you are you don't you know very uh, simple easy uh, steps and that went on for how long 20 years okay. something Gosh. yeah yeah um, but uh, uh, all the time it was uh, it was running from the, the from the uh, from the eyes of the regime, but at the same time not running from the eyes of the public. Uh, I, I took actually the the um, the job of being the spokesman for <laughs> so even more in the limelight. <laughs> exactly um, uh, for, for the Libyan opposition. So I used to appear on Newsnight, on uh, the evening program of the BBC, uh, on on the news, and 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 talk about Libya. And that Libya was uh, very active at that moment, and there were clashes between Britain and Libya, and so on. And during that time, were you? Did you get any specific threats after that, or did you get close the to threat, them, or did you just? Kind the, of... the, the threat were, were always there. They were always there, but um, but I I. I hadn't any, you know, I had no confrontation with with uh, some with the killers or anything, but the, I know they were there. I mean, the day you heard that he was killed, Gaddafi, 
Do you remember that day? What was that day like? What I was your reaction? How did you find uh, out? And how did you uh-huh. react? I was in Libya, though, of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you'd gone back with... I went back immediately after the 2011 events. I was in inside Libya when he was taken. And I was part of the people of the whole uh, body who worked against uh, the, the regime and who were you know, ready to take up certain posts or certain uh, responsibilities to, to push the, the thing along, uh, to push things forward, you know, the, the situation of Libya generally. And... Because uh, um, his killing seemed to have been just quite chaotic in terms of the people that yes, found course, him. and course, then just, of course, of course. It was, so it how was did chaos. you find out and how did you oh, feel? Oh, yeah, we were, we were there... We were in touch with the people who were hunting him to, you know, to 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 hold, to uh, detain him or whatever. Uh, the way the way it happened, of course, he was he was killed immediately when he appeared uh, to be uh, somewhere uh, which was open and so on. It's not a matter of how he was killed, but the thing is that he has disappeared from the scene, and this is what we were. Uh, working for that the man must appear from the scene and the the situation is returned back to the hands of the people and had 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 there always been expectation that whoever finds him will kill him or had they been trying to bring no, bring no, him alive or there was no um, uh, nobody was going to bring him no, alive because nobody was in charge you know uh, yeah. uh, oh, lots of people had weapons lots of people going around looking for him so on the first people who, who find him, you know, uh, have the uh, the decision or have the the priority of uh, of be, of of uh, deciding what to do with him. And there must have. I mean, did you feel a sense of relief that that chapter absolutely, was over? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that was the biggest achievement of that movement uh, of nineteen eleven uh, of of tw- uh, nineteen uh, twenty eleven that got rid of Gaddafi, because everything is built around Gaddafi in Libya. Now, one of the lessons of the Arab Spring um, generally has been a lot of people in hindsight then saying, actually, you know, this whole idea of things might not have been great, but at least there was stability, and now there's more chaos, more um, conflict, things have deteriorated, and we're talking across you know a number of different countries. But for Libya specifically... Do you still think things are better without Gaddafi? Or is there too much, you know, there's chaos, there's, you know... And I guess it's part of the difficulty for people at office in the West is we don't know actually what the situation on the ground, you'll know very differently. But how do you kind of make sense? Because at one sense, everybody was feeling, yes, you know, we've got rid of all these dictators. But then the fallout and the chaos and the... Um, the, the conflict since then is also difficult to digest... It is difficult to resist, and that's why it is false to accept that uh, things should have stayed as they were, or uh, we wish they stayed that way. I think this is a false uh, objective. It, 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 history doesn't work like that. History uh, decided, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided that Gaddafi should go, and this is what... Uh, we were working working for, and this is what um, happened. So the achievement is there. 
the fact that Gaddafi has gone is an end of 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 a phase in Libyan history. Um, uh, yes, afterwards things um, became chaotic. Things um, uh, were uh, run run out of control. Uh, but I think this is a reflection more on the people rather than on the uh, on the situation as it, as, as uh, itself. The people did not run things properly. The people, uh, you know, new new ideas come up uh, to them. They began became more materialistic. They began um, very much for myself. You know, everybody wants to 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 uh, gain uh, power and influence. So there was a a power vacuum, and this power vacuum has resulted in the uh, in the so-called civil war or civil strife that that Libya that Libya been living through. But this must not influence our 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 ourselves that we should have been better. You know, the status quo uh, would have been much better. But surely people would say, look, for the average family on the ground in Tripoli or in some village, you know, are things worse now than it was then? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And I think. But how do we make sense of uh, that? Yeah, uh, it is one of the most um, painful facts, is this one, you say. You know, for some people, ordinary people, things have become much, much more worse than before. Uh, but it doesn't say the solution is we go back to the original to the original situation. That is a, a negative th- thinking. The positive thinking is to go forward, because you know when when these things happen, when these uh, turmoils uh, happen, and the change is so big, uh, they're bound to be uh, victims. They're bound to be. Um, price to to pay unfortunately uh, libya has taken the brunt of 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 everything and the period of transition isn't it things yeah, will take time. it's a matter of transition yeah. matter of transition could take 5 years could take 10 years could take 20 years are there any countries from the arab spring that have done well do you think is a good model or oh yes better? oh yes I'm, i mean you know the the whole the whole experience of the arab spring has been different uh, for different countries for instance, you find which is a good example. Tunisia, Tunisia, Tunisia is, is 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 better comparatively. Uh, then you have places like uh, Egypt failed. Um, Sudan is tittering here and there. Syria is unfortunately in a bad situation, just like Libya. But there is there is an under undercurrent of of Islamic Spring still existing in all these countries, and we have Algeria and. The things that happening in the Gulf at the moment, these are bound to happen. They are, these are bound to to result in something positive. Maybe in five years, in ten years, we don't know. But there's going to 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 be, uh, you know, things will improve. In, in other words, and as we kind of come towards the conclusion of this interview, we've talked a lot about books. Some of the other books that you've translated is Jonathan Powell's book, Talking to Terrorists. But I think also importantly is Nelson Mandela's biography, Long Walk to Freedom. And you have a relationship with South Africa, I think. Yes, of From course. From your wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I'm married to a South yes. African. <laughs> and she, she comes from a very significant family as well. Can you just tell us a little bit about 
I guess South Africa a little bit, and in terms of her f- father was very uh, yes, I mean, religious. It was um, her father was killed in 1969. And can you tell us a bit about her father? Who, yeah, who her father was 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 a, an imam in a in a mosque, and he was um, a Muslim activist. He was he was stu- he studied in in Saudi Arabia and in Egypt a little bit, and then assumed this idea, this this uh, this character of uh, imam. Imam in the sense of that he uh, looks after the Islamic well-being on the, of the community. In South Africa, there's a, a sizable uh, Muslim community from the uh, Cape Malaya people who were living there. There were about 500 people, uh, 500,000 people. And, um, and Imam, Imam Abdullah Harun was very, very... Uh, well known, very famous amongst them. He 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 had a leadership uh, characteristic that he could talk to small people, to big people, and so on. And um, uh, but he was taken into prison. Uh, of course, uh, the situation in uh, South Africa was bad. The apartheid was the rule. He was taken to prison in May 1969. He was brought in a box in uh, S- September 1999, uh, 1969. And uh, from then on, he became even bigger, <laughs> bigger than, than before. So from then on, he, he became a very famous, well-known uh, personality in, in South Africa and very effective. Uh, his, his activities and his legacy still uh, alive today with us 50 years later. So his daughter was studying in, in London, and uh, I was also associated with the Islamic work, you know. So it was through Islamic work that we, we, we came together. Okay. Yeah. That's a, I think that's a whole fascinating uh, separate, yeah. separate story, separate inshallah, story, we can yeah. discuss another time. Just as we conclude, one of the advantages of speaking to people like yourself is obviously there's a lot of wisdom, a lot of experience over many, many decades. What would you say are the main lessons or main reflections or advice you would give to people now from what you've learned, what you've been through, um, particularly the Muslim community? Well, I think the Muslims have, the Muslims in this, in this country have a unique advantage and they have a unique opportunity to be a model Islamic society all over the And I'm very, very proud of uh, the people who ignore this idea of terrorism, of radicalism and so on, and just simply live live uh, Islam, you know, in their life, in their uh, workplace, in their society, in their source. They should associate with anybody. To us, people are people, you know, black, uh, white, yellow, whatever. They're all the same. And they are all, uh, as it were, you know, servants of God. We are servants of God. We are not better than them at all. They could become Muslim and become even better than us. And even in their own situation, wherever, wherever they may be, whatever they are, they may contribute to the society much better than we do. So we have to take that into account. And we must live with people as people rather than as something else. And uh, and this should bring us together, should make us stronger. What advice can you give if there's one thing somebody can do to get closer, have a closer relationship with the Quran? What would you advise? If people have different relationships, sometimes people 
don't read it as much or like to have a more deeper meaning? I mean, what's the one piece of advice? I think you what you give? need is somebody to, to, to teach you how to read the Quran. That's the main thing. And, and read it correctly and so on. And then, um, you know, translations exist nowadays, very good translations of the Quran. Then you can get a sense of the meaning. You, you can sometimes get the whole sense of the meaning. But, uh, but the Quran, remember, even in Arabic, is not containable. I mean, nobody knows all the uh, uh, mysteries of the Quran. We, all, we are all working to understand more and more and more. So don't be afraid that there are certain things you, don't, uh, you can't understand or, or, or you need to do some more work to understand and so on. You take it uh, you know, slowly, as it were. If you open the Quran, any, any, any section of it, there, is, there are ideas in that page or two pages where you can uh, get some sense out of and it will be a good sense, and it will be a sense that will help you, will open your eyes to new things. And once you take the Quran, one you know, little by little, uh, like this, then it grows on you. It grows on you, and once it grows on you, you can't get away from it. <laughs> well, Jazakallah khair for your time, Brother Ashur Thank Shams. you very much. Um, and we wish you all the best, and um, please do continue to keep up all the good work that you're doing. Inshallah. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam.